Hello and welcome to episode 79 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Stephen Loosely, FRSN Fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales, and a Senior Visiting Fellow at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Stephen Loosely, how are you? Salvatore, I'm very well, thanks. And yourself? I am doing well. I'm having some sound problems here, but I'm about to fix them. Uh, look, we know that there has been a Russian, let's call it an incursion into eastern Ukraine. This is into the two uh, occupied or semi-autonomous provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbass region of Ukraine. Before we get started, we're going to talk about new Cold Wars. What do you make of this Russian incursion into Ukraine? Dictators uh, must always present something uh, to their uh, publics, and Vladimir Putin is no exception in the the Russian circumstance. With all the uh, collection of uh, uh, military capacity for all parts of his truncated empire, including from the Far East, from Siberia, Putin had to deliver something to show for what he's been doing. It's relatively easy for the Kremlin to carefully choreograph this result in uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. We had the Duma a week or so ago in Moscow uh, claim uh, the the provinces for Russia. Then uh, uh, Putin had a contrived meeting of his national uh, security apparatus and then he signed off. And uh, this meant that uh, as in Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Crimea, he can take these areas by stealth. It is just possible, Salvatore, that this is his off-ramp, that he doesn't want to go any further in Ukraine at this time. Will he eventually try and destroy the Ukrainian uh, experiment in democracy? My word. Will he definitely try and bring Ukraine back under uh, his uh, control? Absolutely right. But at the moment, he may not go much further than these two breakaway uh, uh, provinces. But there's no question that um, since 2014 and the occupation of uh, Crimea by the the Russians, uh, we have been in a second Cold War. And this uh, most recent example of incursions into a a sovereign and independent country that's a neighbour of Russia is simply underlining that reality. And we should stress that uh, the two provinces are not entirely breakaway. They're about 50% or maybe 40% uh, occupied by pro-Russian separatists. The remainder is occupied by sovereign Ukraine. Uh, Look, Stephen, we build this episode as culture and the new Cold Wars. All the news the last few weeks has been Russia, Russia, Russia. We can't really forget China, China, China. Are, are these two Cold Wars or one Cold War? Nor should we uh, forget uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party. And it's very good that US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, when he came to Melbourne for the meeting of the, um, of the Quad, uh, underlined the reality of Chinese ambitions, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but globally. There's no question that the CCP's ambition over the longer term, and I'm talking about over the next 20 years or so, is first to displace the United States and then to replace the Americans as the primary global power. And we've seen that 
not only through the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, through debt diplomacy and the like, uh, to use uh, Vice President Pence's accurate uh, description. We've seen it in uh, the greater assertiveness and then the greater aggressiveness of the Chinese military, including the very recent episode in the Arafura Sea with the uh, the beaming of a laser on uh, an RAAF aircraft that was shadowing the Chinese vessels in what amounts to Australian uh, economic uh, zone, an Australian economic zone. Now, that just comes short of an act of war. It's definitely a hostile act by an adversary. And the Chinese message was, we can project power into your waters. We can do as we please. This is not the behaviour of a country which observes international law in any one of its dimensions. And, and that's why when we talk about a second Cold War, it's really countries on the one side, the dictatorships, that observe no norms. And we see this repeatedly. Look at the Minsk Accords being torn up by the Russians. Look at the Hong Kong Agreement between China and Britain that the, the Chinese Communist Party tore up. And so it goes. On the one side, the dictators just have no time for treaties and protocols and norms. On the other side, Western democracies, which fundamentally would like to see the international arena governed by treaties, protocols and laws. We're not perfect, far from it. But that, that really is the distinguishing feature. So we're talking between the, uh, the democracies, the democracies of the West in large measure, and in that I talk about democracies in the Indo-Pacific as well, uh, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, India, and, and the, the democracies of the West and the dictators, particularly the Chinese and the Russian variants of dictatorship. Stephen, the, the old Cold War was a war of ideologies, you know, communism versus capitalism. And the USSR was not a monoethnic state. Of course, Russia was dominant in the USSR, but it was very explicitly a multi-ethnic state. Now, we don't usually go to viewer questions right away, but Antony raises the issue of this new vision of the ethnostate. And I want to tie into here our, our advertised purpose, which is to talk about film. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has been a big fan of the film Viking, you know, which portrays Russia as a single ethnicity. A lot of the narrative around Ukraine has been that from coming from Russia has been that there's really no such thing as a Ukrainian ethnicity. Therefore, uh, since all Ukrainians are, and I'm going to put this in big air quotes, you know, really just Russians, uh, it's perfectly natural for Russia to intervene in Ukraine. In China, there's been a real emphasis on Han ethnicity. Um, so do these new Cold Wars, do, do they have legs? Do these opposing ideologies, do they travel? They can in the, uh, in the sense of the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, for example very definitely travels. Uh, and the, the Chinese argument is that their system of development is superior to that of the West, superior to that of the, of the West in terms of bringing people out of poverty. And of, of course, due regard must be had to the Chinese track record here. It's just that the BRI comes with unacceptable uh, uh, caveats, no, uh, no question uh, about that. Coming to uh, uh, the Russians, it's, it's true. In terms of the emergence of the, the Russian state, uh, a lot of their historians, this comes from myth and legend to an extent, and all societies are built partly on myth and legend. 
you'll note that the current Russian uh, motif of the double-headed eagle was uh, once uh, the mark of Tsarist Russia, but that did not appear overnight. It came from Byzantine times. After the fall of Constantinople, there were some Russian historians, some Russian thinkers who argued that Rome is gone, Constantinople is gone, but Russia is the third iteration of the Roman Empire. And the double-headed eagle is originally Byzantine. So that's where we uh, trace part of the Russian mythology, certainly to Kievan Rus. So Putin's fondness for uh, uh, Viking fits neatly into that. Putin doesn't recognise Ukraine as an independent country. Uh, Ukrainians as being independent, sovereign citizens of their own republic. But amusingly, Russian. amusingly, Viking is about that, obviously, the Viking, the, the Nordic heritage of the Russian ruling family, which is a separate origin myth for Russia from the Byzantine Greek Orthodox Church origin myth for Russia. Does that matter in Russia or is it just, uh, is, is all nostalgia equal in some sense? I think uh, all nostalgia uh, calls for something of a denial of actual historic realities. In the movie Viking, I, I think the prince goes to Scandinavia to recruit people to help him in the, right. in, in the civil war. Uh, and the like, including Swedish soldiers. What I, I find really amusing now is given Putin's behaviour, Sweden and Finland very quietly are considering membership of NATO because they realise that the strategic game has yeah. changed. The Russian film that I think illustrates the Putin regime uh, in contemporary times brilliantly is a movie called Leviathan. Okay. And you can trace that to Thomas Hobbes if you like, or you can take it uh, down different. Uh, historical pathways. But there is uh, one scene in it that's outstanding where it, it's it's set in a, a, a Russian town where a man is about to lose his home uh, to shadowy figures in the Russian establishment. Ultimately, it turns out to be the Orthodox Church. But the establishment is determined to take his home. And he does all the things that you would think a, a citizen in a, a, in a civilized society would do in terms of opposing going to court and so on. He gets absolutely nowhere. But you see one scene in which people are at a, essentially what is a shooting range and the targets are former general secretaries of the Soviet Communist Party going back to Lenin. And someone asks, you know, where is, uh, is Putin? And uh, it's not time for Putin just yet. But when they go into the office of this corrupt bureaucracy, the most prominent photograph is, is Vladimir Putin. I mean, it is, it, is a, it is a wonderful film. Uh, and I, I think movies illustrate the first Cold War and, and the emerging second Cold War quite brilliantly. I mean, nothing has ever been made to rival Dr. Strangelove, uh, for example. <laughs> uh, and the, those final scenes where Slim Pickens rides the bomb down yeah. and but Peter that's... Sellers, Strangelove, gets up out of his wheelchair and announces, mind Fuhrer, oh, I can walk and so on. Well, it's quite extraordinary. We all think of Dr. Strangelove and <laughs> as the, as those of who, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Uh, you know, it's the ultimate Cold War film, uh, you know, Peter Sellers. But um, Dr. Strangelove's a comedy. 
uh, well, I mean, it's, a, it's a very dark one. It's a very dark comedy. It's very dark, but comedy. it's played for laughs. It it is it is not a, and it, it it's a satire. So it well, that's why we adjusted to the first Cold War. Is in it, such, you got to remember, you got to remember, Salvatore. The uh, the second half of the film's title is how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. And I, I think that puts it in in perspective. Right, but how uh, much... We haven't yet seen a movie of that kind about the second Cold War, but I'm sure it's coming. Well, film buffs love Dr. Strangelove. I love Dr. Strangelove. But isn't the archetypical American Cold War film the Rambo series? Well, it's it's interesting that you, uh, you say that because there's a, a, a very good, uh, I'm talking about cinematic arts, a very good Chinese film called Wolf Warrior 2. Which I always think of as being Rambo with Chinese characteristics. <laughs> it's it's set in Africa, and the origins of our term, so people know Wolf Warrior diplomacy, that comes from the movie. Very much so. Right. And I, I've not seen Wolf Warrior three, but um, Wolf Warrior two would take some some beating. It's set in Africa. There's turmoil, a civil war in this country. The Americans have fled. They've shut their consulate. There's a Chinese fleet off the coast. But the Chinese, of course, can't move until they have a UN Security Council resolution. I mean, that's the way Beijing conducts its foreign policy. Of course. (laughs) You have a circumstance um, in which the villains are mercenaries, European and American mercenaries, but the Chinese are loved by the the locals. Now, the interesting thing about the movie Salvatore is that it's the most popular film, the highest grossing film, in the history of the Chinese cinema. So there is a very clear message there about the arguments that are made to uh, uh, China's constituency. And the, the final scenes, there is a flash-up on the screen, and I'm paraphrasing here, the motherland has always got your back. So uh, China is, uh, is heroic, it is law-abiding, and the West is decadent and, and cowardly. Um, and that is the uh, the message from the film. So in terms of the other side uh, of the divide, as I can uh, as I can describe it, Wolf Warrior 2 really takes some beating. There, there are some unusually good uh, Chinese films, some of which are a lot more subtle than that, but Wolf Warrior 2 is, is the one to observe. There's another film that I recommend called The 800, it's about a, a heroic defence by Chinese forces against the Japanese, and the Chinese movie industry always emphasises the perfidy of the Japanese military uh, during the Second World War, as well they should. Yeah. Uh, but the 800 is essentially a, a, an heroic defence of uh, of a warehouse in Shanghai, really by, uh, in large measure, Guomindang troops, by nationalist Chinese troops at the time, and. Sometimes I think the Chinese film industry has been trying to send a message, one country, two systems, through mutual respect mm-hmm. and so on, to Taiwan and elsewhere. It's going to be interesting to see what the next movie about the Second World War in China uh, looks like. Right. Um, Nikhil, I'm going to circle around to your question in a minute, but first I want to ask Stephen about, further about Chinese movies. In my mind, the, you know, the typical Chinese patriotic movie is always about uh, Chinese fighting Americans in the Korean War or about China fighting Japan in World War II. That is, it's this uh, very much hearkening back 
to a heroic era of the formation of the People's Republic of China. Now, we know Wolf Warrior II is a much more postmodern, new Cold War take on patriotic Chinese movies, but is it typical or are we really still seeing China churn out the uh, you know, the Korean War narrative of the imperialist Americans being beaten back by the heroic communists? No, it's, uh, it, it's more sophisticated. The, the reason I refer to Wolf Warrior II as a Rambo of Chinese characteristics is a heavy content of martial arts, which might uh, explain part of its popularity with, uh, with audiences. Now, sometimes the martial arts actually don't fit neatly into the narrative. But having said that, uh, in terms of the manner in which the film is, uh, is structured, the Chinese special forces are all very adept at the martial arts as they are ideologically driven and uh, ideologically uh, consistent. Historically, the war against the Japanese have, um, have absorbed 1931, 1937 and, and then beyond. Uh, this has absorbed a lot of the interest in the Chinese cinema, including classic uh, movies such as Red Sorghum and so on and so forth. Now, in uh, dictatorships and authoritarian societies, and we used to see this in the old Soviet Union, the party line is always going to be there in one form or another. Even in movies that has Chinese uh, financial investment, you sometimes see it from memory in the movie Midway, there are uh, references to the brutality of the Japanese occupation right. in that uh, film when the American flyers are bailing out in uh, in China after the uh, the raid on Tokyo and so on. And, right, the Doolittle so raid and the, the Chinese people who suffered as a result of the of harboring the Doolittle. They did, group. and they did massively. So this is legitimate, legitimate commentary. If you think about the Soviets, uh, Eisenstein's films, for example, cinematically, they're often quite brilliant. But a movie like Alexander Nevsky, where the, uh, the, the Russians are fighting the Germans uh, in Eons uh, Pass, is a brilliant scene of the battle out on the, the lake. Uh, that disappeared during the time of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. I mean, the Germans were no longer seen as potential adversaries, were they? Uh, and, and you see this uh, uh, from time to time in the Soviet film industry, just as you see it from time to time in the Chinese film industry now. Mm. We, we, I think there's been a lot of uh, Soviet nostalgia in Russia in the last 20 years. A lot of it's stoked by Vladimir Putin himself with that famous phrase of, you know, collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. Nikhil wants to ask you, um, what are the legitimate security interests of Russia? Putin keeps saying that Russia's legitimate security interests are being ignored. What are those legitimate interests? Well, traditionally, the, the Russians have liked to have had a buffer zone uh, in Eastern Europe. They had that at the time of uh, the outbreak of the Great War, where the Russian Empire stretched well into Poland and uh, shared a common border with Germany. Post-war, the Warsaw Pact served that. And, of course, the, the Russians believed that they had been given assurances going right back to the administration of President George H.W. Bush, Secretary of State James Baker, assuring them, yes, NATO would include East Germany when Germany's reunified, but we're not extending East. Now, the Americans now argue that was about East Germany 
uh, being subject to the installation of NATO missiles and infrastructure and so on. But of course, the uh, uh, the NATO boundaries extended to the Baltics, to Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, etc., etc. Uh, et so the, the Russians are keenly aware of the presence of NATO on their borders. Now, the idea that NATO is going to attack Russia, I think, is fanciful. But if there is a, a security concern, then it is good diplomacy to try and address it. And the manner in which the US and the NATO allies, in, in going beyond other American allies have tried to address that through diplomacy. And I, I want to make this point, Salvatore. Diplomacy is not appeasement. Diplomacy is a tool that we use to try and avoid a conflict. Now, if assurances can be given, mutual assurances on, on uh, issues like missile installations, like exercises and so on, like cyber warfare being banned, if we can arrive at those types of mutually agreed assurances, NATO and, and Russia, perhaps we can take the sting out of some of these issues. But Kalashnikov diplomacy is not going to do it. I mean, what uh, what amazes me is this. If you're in Beijing at the moment and looked at the situation two years ago now, uh, there is now a functioning Quad alliance, formidable democracies, uh, Japan, the US, India uh, and Australia that, that work together on a range of, uh, of issues. There's the arrival of, of AUKUS. There's new life having been breathed, breathed into ANZUS. There's the close relationship, almost an alliance relationship between Australia and Japan. Now, this didn't happen by accident. This happened because of growing concerns about Chinese assertiveness that has become Chinese aggression. And earlier assurances by Beijing that not militarise the South China Sea, for example, right. came to but North. The agreement with the British on Hong Kong came to naught. So you, the intrusions in Taiwanese airspace, uh, the intrusions around the Zenkaku Daiyu Island Group, all of these are signs of a of a power that is prepared to deploy military force to achieve its ends. The same with the Russians, breathing new life into NATO. Suddenly NATO goes back to 1949 and rediscovers the reason for its existence. So... You have a circumstance in which the dictatorships have played cards very badly. It's customary to say Vladimir Putin plays a losing hand well. At the moment, <laughs> he's playing a losing hand badly. I disagree absolutely with uh, Donald uh, Trump saying he's a genius. He is not. Uh, he's, he's now in, inherited a situation where he props up Belarus. He props up Kazakhstan. He's responsible for... Uh, part of the eastern Ukrainian provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk. He's got problems in the Caucasus too. This drains the Russian economy mm -hmm. at every turn. Uh, and it, it, it's not an economy that is vibrant enough to maintain these kinds of, um, of client relationships over the longer term. Right. Look, we have to wrap up soon, but I, I do want to get back to culture. That was our advertised topic today. Of course, that was preempted a bit by yesterday's uh, Russian uh, incursions into Ukraine, the special forces there. But it, it may seem odd for me to ask this at a time when there is active conflict of that kind going on. But how much should we really be afraid of this? That is, do the cultural signals coming out of Russia and China 
really indicate a new militarism, a new expansionism? I mean, if I think of of German film in, in under the Nazis before World War II, it's extremely militaristic. Uh, you know, are we seeing that kind of we're going to conquer the world film coming out of Russia and China? Or is it much more modest? I mean, frankly, I'm not worried about a Chinese Rambo. We had American Rambos for decades. Well, let China have its fun. I think America still has Rambos. (laughs) (laughs) So far, the cultural communities that are making films in, in China and Russia do not seem to have been brought to a point uh, where they simply churn out uh, propaganda. And a lot of that is due to the relationships that Chinese filmmakers and Russian filmmakers have with other filmmakers ar- around the world. The unusual thing about Wolf Warrior 2 was in terms of international competition, it actually displaced the official Chinese uh, entrant, which from memory was a history of the, the PLA. Wolf of course. Warrior 2 was thought to be... Was thought to be uh, a more popular and a better film, and and it was. Look, you have to work on the basis that uh, art will take its own course. I mean, who would have thought, for example, that the most famous book on the uh, the Cold War would be a novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, John le Carre, with the apparently dissolute and always disaffected Alec Lemus as a, a British spy, are dealing with absolutely appalling uh, uh, partners in the old East Germany. Now, I, I like to see that, and you think of Ian Fleming and the, the fantasy of James Bond, and then you come to someone like Mick Heron and Slow Horses. These are the spies rejected by MI6, and they're uh, put off on a sideline because MI6 doesn't want them suing for wrongful dismissal, which is a wonderful touch. On, on Western culture. So you have all kinds of evolution of, of espionage. And we'll see that again in terms of books, films, television and the like with the Second Cold War over time. But I think it's healthy, coming back to Strange Love, that we can laugh. And uh, uh, we, we laugh uproariously at some of the, uh, the goings on in the, in the Cold War. The Pentagon dislikes Strange Love so much that they commissioned a film with Rock Hudson to show another version of the Strategic Air Command. Oh, really? Gathering of Eagles, which has disappeared. It wasn't supposed to be a bad film, by the way, but it, it's yeah. disappeared, where strange love uh, endures in perpetuity. And that'll be the result of the Second Cold War, too, yeah. and movie makers in, uh, in Western countries and beyond, I suspect. Stephen Loosely, thank you very much for joining us today. It is an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Alberto. Thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Thank you for watching On Liberty.